Um, Return with me, if you would, to verse 17. Paul's, uh, well, the New King James, at least, using some of its literalisms, can be a little difficult to follow through some of these verses. Uh, Some other translations are actually quite helpful. Um, But, yeah. Verse 17, Paul says, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister or a servant of sin? Certainly not. Certainly not. So again, uh, the language of this text needs to be uh, brought into context. Okay? Back in verse 15, Paul said, you know, we who are Jews, we who are Jews. So when he says we, here in verse 17, uh, he's referring to Jews who are seeking to be justified by Christ. And here's the issue. Okay? When a Jew seeks to be justified by Christ, rather than by the law of Moses, he is confessing a couple of things, or he's at least coming to terms with a couple things. He's confessing, first of all, that he could not be justified by the law, and that's why he's coming to Christ. And because he could not be justified by the law, he's unjustified currently. He's still a sinner, just like the Gentiles, as Paul says in verse 15. In other words, the Jews are just as bad off as the Gentiles. Okay, it's the same. So prior to coming to Christ, um, the, the Gentile was never under the law of Moses. They weren't at Mount Sinai to receive it. And, uh, and it wasn't until um, much, much later in history that Jews in the, or Gentiles in the Mediterranean world even became uh, vaguely familiar with the law of Moses. They were never put under it. And then after they came to Christ, uh, they were not to be placed under the law. We learned that from Acts chapter 15. But when the Jew comes to Christ, who was raised under the law, he's circumcised, he's in the covenant, okay? He must, as Paul says in a bit, must abandon the law of Moses if he is to be justified by faith alone. He has to, okay? But when he abandons the law for Christ, he's then without law. He's then without law, which is true, but some falsely assume that he would then be lawless, that is a lawbreaker, an unruly person. And if coming to Christ results in lawlessness, okay, the Judaizer would say that Jesus then is the minister of lawlessness, of sin, okay, which Paul says is absolutely absurd. Okay? Um, but this is actually something that Paul dealt with frequently uh, as he was preaching the gospel of grace. Okay? Uh, Paul was accused of something called uh, antinomianism, antinomianism, which literally means to be without law or lawless, which is true, but the term is misleading. The term is misleading. The Judaizers falsely believed that without law, a person would wander into a sinful lifestyle because there was nothing to restrain him as if uh, laws were capable of such a thing anyway, as we talked about last week. Uh, laws don't restrain people. We, we believe that, right? They, they may warn people. Uh, they may tell you the, what, what the legal boundaries are, uh, but they don't restrain you, okay? Uh, the speed limit sign is a, a written code. It's a law, but it doesn't restrain people. You restrain your foot on the gas pedal, right? 
Okay, just want to make sure. Um, in the military, there were signs everywhere that said, do not walk on the grass. Did that restrain soldiers from walking on the grass? No, especially if nobody was looking. Okay. Laws don't restrain. It's just this idea that we have. They falsely assumed that if you abandoned your obedience to the law, you could then do whatever you pleased. Whatever you pleased, because you'd have no rules to live by. You would be, therefore, unruly. And if that's the Christian faith, then Christ would be the promoter of sin, okay? the pr promoter of license to sin. And that's how they looked at grace, that it liberates a person to do whatever they pleased. And if God was just going to be gracious to me, why not just sin like the devil? Yeah. Paul addresses this false assumption in Romans 6, 1 through 4, saying, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life or a new kind of life. So, Paul is saying there that through faith in Christ, our relationship to sin as a governing force in our lives came to an end. It was severed. It was cut. We died to sin's power. It's, later on, he'll say sin's dominion. Okay? The old man, um, the, the one corrupted by sin, who wants nothing but sin, he was crucified with Christ and then that terminated the dominion of sin over us. So the, the dominating force in our life before Christ, which moved us towards sin, it was canceled. And then it was replaced with a new dominating force called grace, which only, only invigorates righteousness. Only, that's the only thing that grace does. It's, no, it's never a license. So it makes no sense to say that coming to Christ apart from the law leads to sinfulness, to lawlessness, okay? Grace isn't a license to sin. Grace is God's resource for godly living. Let me remind you again of Titus 2, 11 through 14. Uh, Paul's laying out his doctrine of grace. He says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking forward to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people who are zealous for good works. That's what grace does. It saves and it sanctifies. Now, I don't, did you see any license in that text for sin? No, it doesn't appear to be promoting loose living uh, only those governed by sin live in sin, but those who have died to sin, they're no longer under its dominion. That's us, the believer. Okay? And so if the believer's relationship to sin is dead, it makes no sense to say that it lives on or that we keep on sinning because we're under grace. The person who comes to Christ apart from the law 
is not led into sin. They're led away from it. They're, they're, they're freed. Paul says, for he who has died has been freed from sin. He means sin's power. That's Romans 6 verse 7. Christianity does not lead to sin, but there's something that we could do in Christianity that would lead to sin. Look at what Paul says in verse 18. For if I build again those things which I destroy, I make myself a transgressor. What does he mean by that? If I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor, a sinner. Before Paul's conversion, he lived preached and enforced righteousness by obedience to the law of Moses. Isn't that what he did? He was quite zealous for it, wasn't he? Okay. But when he came to Christ for justification, he tells us that he abandoned the law and that he did all he could to destroy the idea that righteousness comes by obedience to the law. That's what he was destroying. Okay. He preached righteousness through faith in Christ alone because there is no justification in the law. But Paul says that he would be a transgressor if he were to build again, or we could say to reinstate obedience to the law, as Peter did, when he influenced both Jews and Gentiles, believers, to keep the law of Moses. Peter, when he did that, became a transgressor. What did he say to Peter? I got in his face in front of everybody because he was to be blamed because he was not being straightforward about the gospel. He deviated from the truth of the gospel. Does that sound sinful to you? Yeah, to to lead people astray from the truth of the gospel, that's transgression, okay? That's transgression. By his example, he was building again the idea that righteousness comes by obeying the law of Moses, that, that following Peter's example is what it is to be a good Christian, okay? Paul is saying, I would be a transgressor if I, was to, if I did what Peter did. That's the context, okay? If I was, by my example or my teaching, led people into this idea that there's any value in keeping the law of Moses. So don't miss what Paul is saying then to us as well, okay? If you tell someone they have an obligation before God to keep the law of Moses, what does that make you? A transgressor. If I build again the idea that righteousness comes by the law of Moses, I become a transgressor. So if Paul would become a transgressor, so would you, so would I, okay? Yeah, you would be perverting the gospel just as Peter did. Listen to what Paul says, verse 19. He says, for I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. The the word that in the Greek is is hina. And we call it the hina clause. It's, It's the purpose clause. And so it can be translated as that. Uh, I think it's better usually to translate it as so that or in order to, okay? Because that's the idea behind it. And sometimes people read over that, uh, that and uh, they don't see it as so that. So let me uh, read that into the text. For I through the law died to the law so that I could live for God. In order that or in order to live to God. Okay. The verse is extremely important. By saying through the law, Paul's you know, referring to some experience with the law uh, when he started to understand it properly. See, as we've said, he, he previously thought, like all Jews, that God gave the law to show people how to be pleasing to him, how to live for him, how to be a good Jewish boy. Okay? 
But the law, Paul says, which I thought would bring life, brought me death. He says, it killed me. Romans 7, 10 through 11. Paul only thought the law would lead him to a life pleasing to God, but he was wrong. And, and I imagine that for Paul, that was very, very difficult to embrace because he was raised in it. It was his culture. It was part of everything in society. Okay? And then Paul, by all uh, outward appearances, he was an extremely moral person. Extremely. I mean, by his own confession, he said that according to the law, I was righteous. He said, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he said, I was blameless. Try to pin something on me. I was blameless. Philippians 3, 6. But when Paul's heart was examined properly by the law, rather than just his, his outward behavior, his experience with the law changed dramatically. It changed. Paul discovered that the law addresses far more than a person's behavior. It confronts the desires of the heart. It confronts the motives. See, the law of God doesn't simply accuse the person who murders or lies or steals. God's law accuses the person who desires to harm, kill, lie, and steal. Yeah. God's law condemns the child who quietly in his heart dishonors his parents or even desires to disobey. The law condemns not only the person who commits adultery, but the one who desires it through lust. Isn't that what Jesus said? Yeah. Paul learned that his outward behavior meant nothing if his heart was rotten, and it was. It was. Okay? And so Paul rightly concluded in Romans 7, 18, he said that, he says, I'm a wretched man, and he means morally, morally, and that he was condemned by the law, and he was worthy of judgment. So Paul had this crazy journey of discovery with the law, and then it comes out in his writings very heavily, very heavily. He learned that by the law is the knowledge of one's personal sin, uh, Romans 3.20, that the law forces the sinner to stop justifying themselves, Romans 3.19, that the purpose of the law is to intensify the gravity of sin, Romans 5.20, to magnify the offense of sin, Romans 7.13, to condemn, never to justify the sinner, to condemn, 2 Corinthians 3.5-9. The law reveals more accurately how far the sinner is from God. And, and it's not to be confused with a ladder so that we can climb it to get to God, like 10 rungs of the 10 commandments. And if, if we just ascend the 10 commandment ladder, no, 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 it's not a ladder. Uh, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, like a tape measure. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. So the purpose of the law was never to justify the sinner. It was always for the purpose of condemning them. Not to provide, as many confuse it for, a proper moral philosophy. Okay? It was to demonstrate man's moral depravity. So it was by Paul's experience with the law that he discovered that he had to die to the law. He had to die to the law. Again, to die to something means that you've cut all ties with it. It can mean nothing, nothing else. To die to it. The relationship is over. It's dead. This is illustrated very clearly, I think, in Romans 7, 1 through 6. Listen carefully to Paul's argument. He says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. Now, he's in, in Romans, so he knows that he's addressing Jews and Gentiles the Jews who definitely know the law, he says that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. 
For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve, Hinaclaus, died to the law, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. In verse one of this chapter, Paul says, the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. But Paul says that all believers have died to the law through faith in Jesus. That's verse four and seven. So our relationship to the law, you guys, it's dead. It's dead. But there's more. Both in Galatians 2.19 and in Romans 7.6, Paul affirms that the believer has died to the law so that in order to live for God and serve him. Look, in order to live for God, what has to happen? You have to die to the law. The relationship to law must be severed. It must come to an end. You see, any ties to the law comes between God and the believer, just as it did for Peter, which made him a transgressor. Teaching obedience to the law made him disobedient. What a strange thing in the gospel. Simply, the reason is, is because God's purpose for law is not a means of righteousness or sanctification. It's just meant to condemn. The moral perfection that stayed in the law is meant to devastate our moral confidence so that we have no other option but to trust in Jesus, who Paul says, and Peter, he is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. Now, I wanna make Paul's point very clear here with some of his language. So I would like you to listen carefully. Not that you're not. You guys are careful listeners. Except I didn't get any emails. Okay. Listen to the language here. It's all identical. We're just going to, well, not me, Paul is just going to substitute or flip-flop the words sin and law. We died to sin, Romans 6.2. We also died to the law, Romans 7.4 and 6 and Galatians 2.19. Remember, dying to something means to end the relationship with it. So we died to sin, we died to the law, but to what end? By our death, sin no longer has dominion over us, Romans 6.14. By our death, law no longer has dominion over the believer, Romans chapter seven, one through seven. And if you didn't notice it, Paul mentions the seventh commandment and the 10th commandment from the 10 commandments. So he's, when he says law, what does he mean in that context? Say it, don't be afraid to say it. The 10 commandments, okay? He uses two examples from the 10 commandments and then says the law, okay? So by our death, sin no longer has dominion over the believer. By our death, 
the law no longer has dominion. So for what purpose must we die to sin or have we died to sin in the law? We've died to sin so that we might live to God. Romans 6, 2 through 4. And we've died to the law that we might live to God. Romans 7, 4 and 6 and Galatians 2, 19. Now, all of these passages, every single one of them are referring to living for Christ after salvation, after salvation. They're, they're, they're discussing what we call sanctification. In other words, Paul's not talking about what is needed for salvation. He's talking about how we live for God after salvation. Here's the context. Walking in newness of life. How many unbelievers do that? They don't. Romans 6, 4. Serving in the newness of the spirit. Romans 7, 6. Living for God, Galatians 2.19. Living by faith in the Son of God, Galatians 2.20. Now that seems very clearly to contradict obeying the law after salvation because Paul says the law is not of faith. I live by faith in the Son of God. But then he says the law is not of faith, Galatians 3.12. We cannot confuse the two. And these passages cannot be referring to unbelievers, just believers. So then... If we died to sin, if you died to sin, do you have any obligation to its desires? Please say no. Okay. And if we died to the law, do we have any obligation to obey it? Same language. If the answer is yes to the second question regarding obedience to the law, shouldn't the answer be yes to the second question regarding sin? That is, if we have an obligation to keep the law after we've died to it, Wouldn't we have an obligation to obey the lust of sin after we've died to it? Because the language is identical in every passage, unless, of course, we're saying that Paul means the exact opposite while using the same language. That would be crazy. You could not possibly understand anything that Paul said if he uses identical language in completely opposite ways in the same context and breath. Nothing could be more confusing if I spoke that way to you. You would say, please stop talking to me. But if the answer is no to the first question, shouldn't the answer be no to the second one? You guys, it has to be. It has to be. If our relationship to both has truly ended because of death, as Paul insists that it has, what further obligation do we have to either? Absolutely none. None. Paul is telling us, as he says elsewhere, that his covenant relationship to the law has ended through the blood of Christ. His obligation to look to the law as a legitimate path to righteousness has been terminated. It's been terminated. So if we are free from sin and the law, how is it then that we achieve righteousness? Yeah. Paul explains in verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now what is stated in brevity here is given at length in Romans 6, where Paul says that through faith, Christ's death became our own. We've been crucified with Christ. Christ died so that we could die. His death for sin, as we've said already, ended the tyranny of sin. And then through faith, Christ's resurrection becomes our own. And it's through the resurrection You guys, that the spirit of Christ then resides in the believer so that Christ can then live through the believer. That's the gospel, okay? We don't subject ourselves to external code of ethics like the Ten Commandments to 
achieve the righteousness that God requires. That's been proven to be impossible. Remember what Peter said in Acts 15 when they were demanding that we, we command the Gentiles to keep the law of Moses. And he said, why do you tempt God by putting a yoke on the disciples which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? This is impossible. Okay? Paul says that this new life of righteousness can only be achieved by trusting in Christ who now is living in us. Living in us. And don't miss the implication of Paul's statement. You guys, the living Christ who lived a perfect life, and by his death and resurrection, he defeated the power of sin in us. He also defeated death. He now dwells in the believer, and he's not dwelling in here just to hang out. He dwells in us that he might glorify the Father through us. He is the only one that can produce righteousness that is well-pleasing to God. And the only way for that to be achieved is by us yielding to him, by trusting him. He's living in us that he might live through us. Paul said, Christ lives in me, and now I live by faith in him. Paul wasn't trusting in his own efforts to become righteous by keeping the law. He makes it very clear in Philippians chapter two, or chapter three. He says, this righteousness comes purely by walking with Jesus. Don't we sing a hymn called Trust and Obey? Yeah. Relying upon Christ to energize him for holy living depending on him to make me pleasing to God. So what are you doing to please God? I would encourage you to be very careful in what you do because there's only one way to please God. There's only one person, by the way, who is pleasing to God, and that's his son. And if he is not living his life through you, you are spinning your wills, spinning your wills. Too often we replace trust in Christ for our own ability to be righteous. We reduce what Paul is saying here to obeying rules, whether it's the Ten Commandments or something else in the law of Moses or some, uh, the religious requirements of some Christian tradition or whatever. And we like it, don't we? We like checklists. Just tell me what I got to do. And then we get after it with our own moral strength. But God is not pleased by that. You know, some people do this because they believe that Obeying the law really is the path of righteousness and sanctification. I hope, I seriously hope it's, it's nobody in here after what we've talked about because Paul says that's a very grave idea, foolish venture. But others, and I believe that it, it, it's mostly us who don't really believe that we're under the law, we do it unwittingly as we try to obey in our own strength because we do have this strong desire to be godly. We want to hate evil and shun sinfulness. And we want, we strive for holiness. We have a desire for it. But we, we too often rely upon our own strength to conquer addiction, to be a good husband or father, to be sexually pure, to be, to be, to be whatever. We have some moral dilemma in our life that is keeping us from a life that is well-pleasing to God. And instead of learning to trust him more, we go, what do I gotta do? And you know, I work with people that sin all the time. I have to put up with myself even. And we're, we're all into establishing all of these mechanical boundaries. And, and those are good. I'm not saying that we should provide things for the flesh. Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. But if you begin to depend on those things rather than Christ who dwells in you, guess what? You'll be confessing to me again that you were looking at pornography. You will be confessing again 
you will be confessing again. Do you get it? You will be confessing again because you do not have the strength to become holy. If you're not relying upon Christ who dwells in you, that will be ongoing in your life over and over and over again, okay? Like I said, I'm not against people taking precautions. I take precautions. That's called wisdom. But I can't trust in my precautions. I have to trust that Christ is ruling over my heart. He's redirecting my passions, my desires, my tongue, my actions. Amen? Yeah. What we do is we set aside Jesus's unlimited power for godliness, for an extremely crippled source called self-effort. We don't trust him to produce this righteousness. We look for rules to keep. But Paul learned that righteousness comes through relationship only, a relationship of trust. We need to learn to walk by faith in the Son of God who dwells in us. And we need to get away from rules. Paul says, verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. You know, to set aside, it means to to make grace void, to reject it, and to consider it useless. Look, if you are trying to keep rules, that's what you're doing. You're considering grace useless. Useless. The word to set aside, uh, they're, they're often translated as to despise. Most common to reject or despise in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. Grace is always set aside as useless when we try to become righteous by our obedience to the rules. And Paul says that if righteousness could in any way be attained by keeping the law, he says, then Christ just died in vain. We need to understand the, the implications of our actions. That when we set aside grace, we're keeping rules. We're saying grace is useless. Jesus wasted his time. You're saying, Jesus, I got this. But when Jesus came, he, he, he said, no, no, you don't got this. I got thousands of years of history to prove it to you. But I got this. And then he went to Calvary and he spilled his blood. That's what happened. We are too morally crippled to live the righteous life that God requires. We're too morally broken to achieve moral perfection, which is described in the law. Yeah. Only grace can elevate us by the indwelling Christ. And we need to understand that to introduce any other means for righteousness, which is Paul's argument, it contaminates and it perverts the gospel, which then just leaves its victim destitute and morally bankrupt. Okay? That's what it does. Righteousness doesn't come by the law. It only comes by trusting in Jesus' moment by moment. We need to understand that it is Jesus's responsibility to make us righteous. It is Jesus's responsibility to make you holy. Your responsibility is to trust and obey, okay? He is our righteousness, Paul says, and our sanctification. He's everything. Isn't that what Paul says over and over? Christ is all in all. Well, he needs to become all in all for us in our daily lives and all that we do. All right, if you have questions about what I've said, uh, please come talk to me. Um, I like emails. My email address is on the website. Uh, yeah, um, if, if you're struggling with what I've said, um, I'd like to wrestle you out of it and, uh, and then get you rolling with it because nothing can invigorate your life like the grace of God that's being distributed through the Son of God as he lives in us. Amen? Okay. So that's what I got for you today. Uh, It gets crazier in chapter three. 
so please come back for that. Why don't you go ahead and stand up, and uh, we'll pray together, and I'll cut you loose.